You're listening to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. We're covering muscles, of course, all kinds of movement, recovery, and fitness. I'm your host, Julie Reed. I'll bring information you can trust from new to you sources. Today, I'm chatting with Lee Dawson. Lee has eight years of experience in adaptive strength and conditioning and has been running her own post-rehabilitation cancer program for three years. While she also trains general fitness clients, Lee spends most of her time working with adaptive clients. She is certified by the STAR program in oncology rehabilitation and has a BS in exercise science along with a BA in political philosophy. Lee has also developed active meditation and mindfulness techniques that are adaptable and scalable and enjoys making connections with other practitioners to create a more holistic treatment for her clients. You can find Lee on Instagram at, at Lee Dawson. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for being here. You work with clients with disabilities. Before we get into fitness, let's start by talking about language. What's the language you use around disabilities? I don't have a set parameter for the language I use, which is what I like to address because my clients have different preferences based on whether they have chosen to really distance themselves from their disability as an identity. And then those that have really embraced it as an identity as part of awareness of the size of the community. Because there's so little adaptation in our community and because so much of it is insufficient, grouping together and making sure people know that even if they have an invisible disability, that they might need easier access to things. People to know that if you see a person with a disabled parking placard that looks fine, (laughs) that those are significant disabilities. So, and I talked about things like physical limitations and movement differences and all of those overlap. There are certain words that like a lot of groups in our society are only for the marginalized group to use. And I don't use those. Um, I also, it's not up to me to correct people that do if those, if they're part of that group. But other than that, uh, I'm open to any, you know, kind-hearted discussions about people that have different opinions about which language should be used. So how do you know what language to use with a client? Is it something that you listen for? How do you go about understanding their preferred language? I just err on the side of non-identifying terms. I do understand people that do want it as an identity, but that's their choice. It's not mine. And to be honest, I make mistakes. But most of my clients are um, so used to people asking questions that they might not find appropriate. They've been poked and prodded by a million doctors. They get stared at. But honestly, like a respectful discussion about which language they prefer is really no problem for them to handle. So sometimes it's, it's, it's not even noticed, but I just I err on the side of talking about the, the physical issues that the client has that are relative to me as a coach. And then everything that is just sort of responding back to them with, with which language they use. So now that we've covered a very high level view of the language surrounding clients with disabilities and adaptive fitness, let's talk about how you became involved in working in adaptive fitness. I started in general fitness. Like a lot of people, I had a background in something totally separate. I sort of went into fitness to figure out what I wanted to be when I was a grown-up in a way that gave me a little more flexibility to do that. And then eventually I decided to go back to school for an exercise science degree because I thought I might want to go into physical therapy or occupational therapy and you know, doing a, a clinical-based exercise science degree would sort of prep me for that as well as give me more information as a coach. Um, I also was a little bit disheartened with working in general fitness that there was so much focus for me every day on weight loss, on aesthetics, which are important to a lot of people. But for me, I, I really wanted to work with people that wanted to be able to do stuff. 
it took me a long time to develop empathy for things like body image and um, being focused on weight loss because they weren't ever big issues with me. Um, there's some really great reproducible reasons for that that we can talk about another time. Some of it is just I got so many opinions about my body for so long that I stopped caring what other people thought about it. But when I went back to school, I worked with a professor in I believe it was an exercise physiology class who found out that I was a coach and took it upon himself to challenge me for the first couple of classes about things that he thought I should know. And I basically would come back to him as like, dude, I'm, I came to school because I don't know this stuff yet. Give me a break. Um, and a couple of classes in, I think he appreciated my honesty instead of trying to act like I already knew everything. And he said, hey, if you're ever looking to, for a job, let me know. He said, I, have, you know, I work for a company as a side position and I really think you'd be good with it. I didn't respond to that for a couple of months, but eventually I, I really was ready to move on. I had more time in my schedule because my class load was lighter and I ended up moving into adaptive fitness. And I really loved the challenge of it, the creativity it required. Um, limitations are really good for kind of stretching out your brain to try and figure out solutions. And um, so it was sort of like a lot of things, it was sort of an accident. And then I just took to it and started working with more athletes. And I had a really, was able to have a really diverse experience while still working with some general fitness clients and that adaptive fitness knowledge really helping me to become a better coach for them as well. So what kind of clients do you see in the adaptive fitness space? Really anyone with any significant traumatic movement issue, but a lot of it is brain injuries, um, strokes, spinal cord injuries, neurological disorders like MS, uh, Parkinson's, a little bit of ALS, though that progresses so quickly, I usually don't see them for long before they qualify for more care, um, as well as developmental disorders, things like cerebral palsy, and um, people that have had any sort of significant health challenge that's affected their ability to train in maybe a more traditional manner. So when you get a new client, where do you start with them? Most of my clients, if they come to me, are recently released from physical therapy. We start with exercises the physical therapists have given them, which horrifies most of them because the last thing they want to do is any version of the thing they've been doing for the last six months. But for me, that gives me an idea of exactly what they're already capable of. And then I'm able to adapt from there. But I do some general screens that are not, they're, they're not from any book. They're not from any particular research, but that tells me exactly what control they really have, whether their balance issues are a matter of a neurological issue or a matter of deconditioning. Um, and I just have a couple of really basic movements that I know will give me good information about how that person's moving, where their weaknesses lie, and where I can make the biggest difference right away, as well as discussing with them what are their particular limitations in their day. Um, whether it's a matter of endurance, getting really tired, or whether they have pain or soreness in particular spots after certain activities. Uh, it's really very similar to what you would do with a general fitness client. It's just a, a little different scale. So these screens that you mentioned that you do, do are these things that you have developed over time? There, yeah, it's a lot of it is sort of taking bits and pieces from things like the FMS and other screens where um, the full screens might not be appropriate for my clients, but finding out things like how their hips move, can their glutes activate of shoulder mobility, can they hold themselves upright, but it's not really in a set 
matter of a screen. A lot of it is really simple exercises. And if something's working really well, I know, great, that's a rabbit hole. We can go down and make big improvements. Um, if something's not working at all, that's something that we have to account for in terms of balancing out their workout so you don't develop, you know, overstress things on the other side. But a lot of it is stuff that people would recognize as like warm-up activities for the workouts they do with their general fitness clients. When we talk about it being scalable, a lot of it is very familiar to a lot of people once they see it. It's just you look at the situation, it seems very complicated until you just kind of try some stuff and the stuff starts to make sense. I think there's definitely a comfortableness aspect to working with clients with disabilities that most trainers don't have. And what I'm hearing you say is that there, a lot of general population fitness is very transferable to an adaptive fitness client. Can you talk about getting more comfortable with the adaptive population? Absolutely. The analogy I like to use is it's not apples and oranges. It's more like a, you know, a regular navel orange and like an orange the size of a car. There's, there's definitely a difference. You're going to look at it and you're going to look like those are not the same thing, but the closer you examine it, the more you see overlaps. For example, someone that uses a wheelchair for stability is going to have a lot of the same issues as someone who has a desk job. You know, someone who has a stroke that may have affected one side of their body is going to have a lot of similar issues to someone who had a significant knee injury with a long rehab. The most important thing you can do to feel more comfortable is understand that you are not in charge of fixing the broken stuff. A lot of people, when they work with adaptive fitness clients, start going, okay, well, this hand doesn't work as well. We'll get that working better. We got to make sure this person stays totally balanced. We got to make sure that we don't overdo one side or the other. And you start looking at it as a physical therapist. I refer out to physical therapists all the time. I, that is not my job. My job is to take the stuff that works well, make it work better in a way that doesn't interfere with their activities of daily living. Also, it helps coaches to realize that you have already trained people with disabilities, whether you know it or not, even if they were just temporary. Um, if you've been coaching long enough, everybody's worked with someone who was in a boot for two months or sprained their wrist and couldn't hold things, or tweaked their neck in a car accident and you had to adapt it. We've all done adaptations in bits and pieces. It's just that with these clients, sometimes you're dealing with multiple adaptations at the same time. But if you look at it that way and you think about, what if this wasn't a stroke? What if this was a broken ankle? You know, what if this wasn't a fatigue from cancer? What if it was chronic fatigue syndrome and things that you may have already worked with but in terms of fitness, strength and conditioning doesn't really care why things have happened. It's just a matter of how would you, under those circumstances, regardless of why they're there, how would you address it with a client that you've already had? I think the other thing it helps with is to think of your disabled clients as athletes that are always in season. That person has to leave and has, they, might be, they might have a spinal cord injury and need their upper body all day long to care for themselves. So as much as it looks really cool on Instagram to do a bunch of battling rope drills or some tire flips, if that person gets biceps tendonitis, they're screwed. You know, that's going to really interfere with their life. If you're doing an, a day off workout with an NFL quarterback, your first concern is don't mess them up. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think of them as athletes in season and you just approach it as like, how can I get their energy up? How can I get them stronger? How can I get them moving better? But also, how can I make it so that they're not mad at me the rest of the day? 
the other big thing is just as and most coaches do, if you get to a certain point in your career is have a lot of cueing variations. You've had someone who either, you know, has a brain injury, so they might have some processing issues or just someone who's through trauma has become disconnected from their body. You might need to cue a couple of different ways to get what you want to happen to happen. But don't assume that just because the cue you've worked with, you know, 90 other people has worked, doesn't mean this person can't do that thing. You might just be able to have to say it in a way that makes sense to the way their brain is connected to their body. But really, it's just, you know, take it piece by piece. Don't get overwhelmed. And also understand that most people coming in to see you with a disability, one, have already done the hard work because they've come into an unfamiliar place as a person who doesn't necessarily feel like the world is available to them at all times. And also understand that they probably know their body better than most of your general fitness clients. Like they know what their stuff is. You know, a lot of your general fitness clients, you, you know, you, you take an injury history, they tell you a couple of things, you work with them for a couple of weeks and you're like, oh yeah, that's because I have a, I have a, a plate in my ankle. That's, <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's useful information. <laughs> you know, clients with disability, they come in with a list. <laughs> So you actually, as, as, as much as there may be challenges to your creativity, there's actually might even be lower risk in knowing right away what you can do with them and what you can't. So one thing that you said that is sticking out for me is that you have to treat your adaptive fitness clients like they're always in season. Mm-hmm. So I also know that you work with adaptive clients who play sports. That's like another level on top of adaptive fitness clients versus adaptive sports clients. How is their programming different? My clients that are, that are competitive in sports, it's mostly rowing and um, cycling, with various adaptations for both. They all actually have coaches within their sport. Some of them see them like once a week during the season. Some of them, you know, see them rarely and get online programming for their training. Um, but my job, you know, when they're in season is very much like working with any other athlete in season. In, in or out of season. Um, you have to account for trying to balance out their body so the repetitive stress of their sport doesn't interfere with their function. So it's almost sort of reverse programming where I know they're doing a particular movement over and over and over again. I'm programming and things to balance that out. So I have a client who has um, a brain injury. It's actually an elective brain injury to end what was it? essentially a hundred seizures a day or more that he was having. And it presents very much like a stroke where he has use of both sides of his body, but he has more use with one side significantly than the other. So he's, you know, he does bike races that are 50, 60 miles long. He does four or five hour rides on the weekends. So for me, it's, he's really strong on that one side and not as strong on the other side. And when he cycles, he tries to keep as balanced as he can when he's kind of cruising. But when he really starts print sprinting, he like lays into that right side a whole lot. And I don't blame him. You know, this is a, he was a very competitive athlete before that. Um, and he, you know, if you've worked with athletes, you can't tell them not to do stuff that's going to make them win a race. <laughs> so part of it is I do a lot of um, restorative work to kind of make sure his pelvis stays balanced, make sure his spine stays relatively straight. He doesn't start leaning too much to one side make sure he's recovering properly. That's another thing a lot of athletes don't do. Um, And then when we're in the off season, I do a lot of um, unilateral training side to side to make sure that that the less strong side gets a lot of work to balance out the times that he's just going to go ham on the other side (laughs) and not use it at all. 
you know, you're just trying to keep the scales relatively balanced, but knowing that someone with that significant injury, it's, you don't have to aim for perfectly balanced. I always tell people, if you're like, you know, 60, 40, you're pretty good. Just don't let it get to 80, 20. So it's trying to keep it closer to the middle so that it doesn't drift further and further apart. Because, you know, he's a, he's a, a young guy. He, for him, winning is everything, but he might be 50 years old and listing way to one side and going, crap, I shouldn't have done so much cycling. So I do my best to try and prevent that from happening down the road. I have to be the one thinking long-term and reel them in a little bit. What are some of the ways that you reel them in? You know, that's, part of that's the challenging part. When, you, when you're working with someone with some cognitive issues, I, I, you know, I joke, and I've joked with this with him and with other clients, so before I sound like I'm an awful, terrible person, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. Like you can have someone that totally understands where you're coming from when you're making suggestions for the programming and what they need to do, but you might need to have that conversation every time you see them until it kicks into long-term memory instead of short-term memory. Um, I find that if you're dealing with athletes, disabled or not, that generally if you can explain why what you're doing is going to help their performance, then they're tentatively all in. <laughs> they might want to do something. They might prefer to do something that looks like more work, but I do some, you know, restorative yoga positions and I'm like, you just, you know, listen, if your pelvis gets out of whack, you're not going to have the same hip drive from the strong leg even. So you need to keep that even so that you can even maintain strength, let alone build it. But, um, and the same thing goes for rowing, you know, if it's single side dependent, it's upper lower body that if the threat of not being able to participate is often a great motivator. You know, one of those things like getting tendonitis or getting, um, you know, shoulder issues are things that can derail their progress. So talking about how essential things are, are to do to make sure they can keep doing what they love to do is usually the best argument to make with any athlete, disabled or not. You've mentioned the pelvis a couple of times. What are, way, what are some of the ways that you help to balance out the pelvis? You've probably seen with your clients and with a lot of other coaches that any sort of issue further down the chain eventually ends up at the hips and the lower back and the thoracic spine because those are kind of the big things that can take over the brunt when other things aren't working as well. So um, if I have clients that have a, you know, a brace on an ankle that they wear every day, they're not getting the mobility there, so they may be getting excess mobility in the hips. Um, part of that is that restorative yoga that I talked about. There's positions that you can put people in that just kind of let them chill out a while. And... Um, let things settle in where they should be. You know, sometimes you get those overactive muscles that just don't ever relax because you use them so much. I mean, if you've ever done a really heavy leg workout and you just can't get your quads to calm down, imagine if everything you do is a heavy leg day. So being able to do um, some muscle therapy, like using a stick, using a lacrosse ball and some tight spots, putting into really light and long-lasting gentle stretches it's more of a neurological training to get everything to relax than it is about elongating muscles or tendons or getting any more uh, distance. But you know, we go, the focus goes to the pelvis. If you think about everybody that you know that has lower back issues and how few of them actually have anything to do with the lower back, it's just sort of the place where everything ends up eventually. So the more that you can get that to at least relax, knowing that the burden that you're going to put on it is going to be unbalanced you know, with a general fitness client, you might be able to do more unilateral training and make sure that they're not overcompensating with one side. But with a lot of my clients, it's just inevitable. And what you have to do is compensate the other direction 
to kind of reset as close to even as you can before they add more on top of that. So these restorative yoga positions are actually really interesting to me. You mentioned long lasting and kind of a light, a light loaded position. And is that good for neurological chain? Um, I think it is because I think the way there's a lot of people, like, you, you know, most of us don't need to stretch that much. What we need to do is chill out. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so sometimes, with the, sometimes what those positions do are generally kind of like gravity, open up some space between joints, um, take the load off of certain muscle groups that are always heavily loaded. Some of it is just placebo effect where you're putting, and I, I use it on myself. I know it's a placebo effect and it still works on me. <laughs> where, you're, where you're putting yourself in a position where your body's like, yes, I am doing something productive when really the productive thing you're doing is nothing. So a lot of it is getting, you know, people that come in for a workout that if you're, they're in a position and they're propped up and they've got a band on their knees and you're like, all right, I want you to do those deep breathing exercises that we talked about. It feels a lot more like making progress than being like, dude, you need to go home and chill out. You're actively doing something. Doing nothing tends to make a lot of people more tense. (laughs) So if you can find a creative way to get them to do nothing in a healthy position, um, a lot of people need more of that. And sometimes for me, because I'm, I'm working with people that might have cognitive issues, they might need to do that with me as opposed to assigning it for homework because they might need someone to help them at home. Their caregivers might not be qualified to actually physically help them to do things like that. So sometimes we have to, you know, allow 10 or 15 minutes a session to just kind of reboot the system and let everything settle down. Is there a particular style of yoga that's good for that? That if somebody is listening to this podcast and they want to go to a class, is there a type of class that they should be looking for? Um, I, restorative yoga will usually be labeled at yoga studios. And that's usually the kind of things where you're going to use a lot of the bolsters and a lot of the straps to settle yourself into positions that you're going to hang out in in three to five minutes. I would also like to state, I am not a yoga instructor. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am an appropriator from all forms of fitness. So it's, some of this is stuff that I sort of made up because I'm like, okay, this will be a nice neutral position. This will be great. And then I found out later that I was actually doing yoga. <laughs> so <laughs> I, don't, I don't want delusions of grandeur that I have like, ah, yes, I am, a, I am an expert of all fields. There's also really good books. Restorative yoga is, is, is one of those things that you can, there's some really easy stuff that you can teach yourself and try out. Um, just neutral positions to put your body in. But I find that aggressive stretching, especially with someone whose body is in, in a defensive condition a lot of the time, they need time to let it relax. They don't need a magic technique. They need to be put in a position to allow themselves to relax. So um, people shouldn't be too concerned that whether you're doing exactly right, if you're comfortable and things are opening up, then you've probably picked a good position for you. Because you know, from when you're talking about hips and lower backs, especially, there are infinite variations on how we're all built and what's going to be comfortable and actually get us to loosen up in terms of insertions and, you know, length of femurs and all those kinds of things. So there's, I really wish I could say do X, Y, Z, it helps everyone, but it's mostly the answer more often than not is play with some stuff. If it feels good, keep doing that. I love that. If it feels good, keep doing that. That's something that's really worked its way into my, what I tell my clients, like let's, let's strengthen our strengths and do the opposite of what doesn't feel good. (laughs) Absolutely. And it just, it's anything that, that like feels good and gets your body in a good position is going to mitigate anything else you have going on. So there's certain things we can't control or would take an enormous amount of investment to control. So if we can just kind of like make the stuff that's working well, 
work as well as we can get it to work, that takes care of a lot of stuff. So chronic pain is a major factor in some of the clients that you treat. Can you talk about how exercise alleviates that? Um, I can, and this is one of those moments where I say something that I say at least once a day at work, which is, I am not a doctor. <laughs> when you talk about pain, I always, you know, when I see people talk about how they can alleviate pain, I'm like, ah, no, I can, I can do stuff, and sometimes alleviating pain is a side effect, but I'm very hesitant to say alleviate pain. But mm-hmm. what I've found, and this is, you know, when, when we talk about some other stuff, is, is I did things that were good quality training and found out that there were really good side effects outside of that. So um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of principles in like somatic therapy for psychological trauma that have a lot of overlap with physical trauma, probably because physical trauma and psychological trauma are, are absorbed and held in a lot of the same ways in our body. So um, a lot of that means kind of starting with the body to heal instead of starting with the mind and being connected to your body and breaking up that loop of anticipating pain can be really helpful. So when I talk about that loop, like if you've, you know, pretty much everyone has rolled their ankle at some point. And, you know, when you have to, when it's sore for a couple of days, you have that moment where you first get up in the morning and you already know it's going to hurt. So your body's already tense. And then the more you move around and the more you are in focused on other tasks, the less you're aware of that pain. So most of us have legitimate pain from an actual issue. And then we have all that extra pain that comes from us anticipating that we're going to have pain. So the thing that strength and conditioning can do for that is just put your focus on something about your body outside of that, that disrupts that pattern a little bit. You know, I found it as a, as a, you know, 5'11", 115 pound, 13 year old, that when I started strength training, all of a sudden I actually knew where my hands and feet were. (laughs) You build a much better connection with your body in terms of trusting what you're able to do um, and not always reacting from a defensive position. I feel like success breeds success. So if you're someone who has had a lot of physical struggles and you start to have success with a strength training program, with a conditioning program, aside from the physical benefits, your brain starts to go, okay, maybe maybe we're going to be all right. We can do some stuff. We did this. We did that. We didn't die. Um, And it helps to alleviate a lot of that tension and a lot of that anticipation patient response that really adds on to the chronic pain that we feel. So let's switch gears and talk about your post-rehabilitation cancer program. What does that look like? Um, I I made a concerted effort to call it a post-rehabilitation program really as a way to, um, to really point out that most people that go through any kind of cancer treatment are not offered any kind of physical therapy. uh, And that's, through research, I'm not just making that up, um, which I find crazy because if you, if you like break a finger, you could get a month's worth of physical therapy. But if you have to systematically poison your body for six months, it doesn't occur to most doctors to think like, maybe you want to work with someone to get back to where you were um, in a nice, safe, controlled way. I feel very similarly about childbirth. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of overlap in those two things. Um, I started the program not even so much as a feeder for clients for me, but as sort of a reverse process to talk to physical therapists, have those physical therapists talk to oncologists and surgeons about making uh, physical therapy prescriptions standard practice when it comes to cancer. Just cancer-related fatigue is an enormous issue aside from any kind of surgical um, 
side effects or anything else that goes on with it, let alone all of that, that, that fear and that disconnect from your body that happens when you go through any kind of physical trauma. Regardless of if it seems less violent to people on the outside than breaking your leg, there's an enormous systematic response in your body to something like that. So I actually, you know, the thing I'm most proud about it is there are a lot more local doctors and surgeons that offer up physical therapy as an option. Not all of them end up working with me simply because not all of them have issues that require that level of care afterwards. But just knowing that a couple hundred more people are actually getting a little more care and attention after their treatment was really important to me. When it comes to the clients that I do see, the biggest issues are any orthopedic results from surgery, side effects of the medication, chemotherapy and radiation both have a side effect called cancer-related fatigue, which I explain as if you've ever had the flu or like a really bad cold, and once you're over it, it still takes you another week or two to get your energy all the way up, you know, to catch up on your sleep, to build your immune system back up. Cancer-related fatigue is like that, but it can last for, you know, six months, maybe even a year. So a lot of people are very excited to be through their treatment. They get back to training and no matter how they try and condition themselves, that fatigue is still there. You can't condition it away. And if you don't understand that, it can be very frustrating and you start to feel like this is, this is how I'm going to feel forever. So working with someone that understands the limitations of your energy and also can explain to you what you can impact and what you can't can be really helpful. The other side effect I deal with a lot is lymphedema. A lot of my clients in the cancer program have had breast cancer, largely because of so many people are diagnosed with it, but also there's a lot of orthopedic issues that come from the surgical procedures that go along with it. Um, studies have shown that strength training is really helpful for lymphedema, but there's a ceiling to where it can actually be harmful. So you shouldn't be scared of it, but definitely if you're working with any clients with lymphedema for breast cancer, do a little research first because that's a big issue. But there's no, there are treatments for lymphedema, but once it starts, you, it doesn't go away. So that's a big concern of a lot of people. So in addition to all of the adaptive fitness and the post-rehabilitation cancer program that you have, you've also developed some active meditation and mindfulness techniques. Can you talk about what you've created? Um, I can, though to qualify that, like a lot of stuff that I've done, I've mostly stumbled upon them. <laughs> um, you, you know, you do things for good, for good physical benefits and you start to realize that, oh, when I do this thing, there's a really good result. We should do more. That's a recurring theme. It's, it's really, I, you know, I joke with my clients. I'm like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm throwing some darts at a dartboard. Something sticks. We're going to go down that way for a while. Um, <laughs> but in terms of, you know, meditation and mindfulness, I think those are two terms that are used very broadly. And I think that's actually a good thing in terms of those two terms, because a lot of thoughts of meditation for a long time were sitting cross-legged on the floor, trying to go into a perfectly Zen space. But most of us don't think that way right away. I mean, it's, it's sort of like telling someone to stop crying, <laughs> to tell someone to stop thinking so much. Like all that makes you want to do is do more of that. Um, and I've had conversations with friends. We have a friend in common, Marshall Roy, and we've talked about like, the monkey brain versus the human brain. This is very unscientific, but <laughs> we, people think that their like higher level thinking is a smarter one, but like the monkey brain is the one that actually like knows what's going on. Like the, the monkey brain knows that a tiger is a dangerous animal and your human brain wants to pet it anyway. 
So a lot of us are so tied up in that higher level of thinking that we're not getting the singles, signals from the monkey brain. Um, when I learned to meditate, I was in college. I went to a very like classical liberal arts college. I had a sociology professor who had long hair and wore tie-dyed shirts and decided that all of us free law students in his class were super high strung and we were going to have ulcers by the time we were 25 and he needed to help us. So he spent a whole class teaching us how to meditate. And he said, one of the things you struggle with is when you're trying to be still and quiet, um, you know, your knee hurts or your nose itches or, you know, you're, you're switching positions constantly. He said, it's much easier than trying to ignore the itch is to just become the itch. So in order to get out of your headspace, sometimes what you need to go is deeper into your body. Um, so some of the things that I've suggested to clients, and again, a lot of this is throwing darts at a dartboard and seeing what agrees with them. The first thing I always start with is breathing drills. So if you've done any kind of training and any kind of corrective system, the first corrective for almost anything is deep breathing exercises. Because again, we talk about that, you know, that somatic therapy of absorbing trauma that if you can get your body, you know, if you can activate your vagus nerve and get your body to just chill out, that takes care of a lot of stuff. Um, I like to do deep breathing drills that actually have the client hold it a little bit so it's kind of comfortable. It gives your body a little bit of good kind of stress. It kind of turns on those alert signals that go, oh, let's, let's try and figure out what's real in here and what's fake. What is that anticipation of pain and what is actually making us uncomfortable? And most of these things are techniques I have clients do at home because there's not necessarily a lot of time during their sessions. So the reason I've tried to scale them and make them really simple is so that they can do it more regularly. Um, the second one is a big one. And this one is, is there's a lot of limitations in terms of ability and living situation and even things like dysphoria, but I am actually a huge proponent of naked time. <laughs> in, like a, in like a non-sexualized way. I'm a, big yeah. fan of it. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of it in a sexualized way too, but first of all, <laughs> is it a non-sexualized way? Because most of us, you know, this ties into a lot of the body image things too, is most of us only see our body under very specific situations. You know, we might see a flash of it out of the shower, then we're covered up all day. We see it when we first get out of clothes and we have, you know, lines all over our body from elastic and we've been held in. Um, we also, you know, get kind of desensitized being fully clothed all the time. So our body ends up being this sort of separate thing from the rest of us. So being a big proponent of naked time, again, doesn't work for every situation. Certainly not something I do at the gym. Um, <laughs> But spending long enough time in your body that you start to develop a little bit of what I call body neutrality. Like I would love if everyone all the time looked at themselves in the mirror and thought, damn, I look good. Somebody should see this. But that's not particularly realistic. What's realistic at first is to get to the point where you're not judging immediately all the time. You kind of break that loop. You spend enough time in it, feeling how your body feels, seeing what it looks like, feeling the way that it moves against itself when you're moving around, that you start to not notice all of that stuff. I mean, you know, we, if, if you look at someone you love, you're not looking at like, oh, this is my, his belly's a little squishier today. Or, you know, we look super tired. You just, you don't pick up on all of that little stuff. And, but we do on ourselves mostly because we're just not with ourselves enough. Um, so I'm a huge proponent, even if, even if it's just, 
you know, spending some time in a nice robe moving around so that you're actually in contact with your body. I touch myself all the time. Non-sexualized. <laughs> Listen, we can talk about the other stuff too, but like I'm constantly like rubbing earlobe. I do what I call the seat belt, which is like putting my arm over across my collarbone under my shirt. I like to rub my belly over my shirt or under it. I, I feel like that subconsciously that's become a grounding tool for me. So I know like, like I'm here, like I'm in this physical space. I'm not up here in my brain and it's not compulsive. It's not something that makes me feel bad. I just feel like being in contact with your body and what's real really helps you keep you from floating off into some of that other stuff. So if you've been through a trauma, I mean, trauma is a word that gets used a lot too, which is good. People are talking about it a lot more, but they forget that like losing a limb is trauma, but so is a paper cut. And if you cut your finger on the same book, every time you reach for it, you're going to stop reaching for it. So when I use trauma, don't think it means to mean that you have an enormous disability or a huge injury, but it, it, it gives us, it makes us be connected from what's real about our bodies because you want it to be the way it was before. You don't want it to be the way it is now. And you don't have to love where it is now, but just understand like what it is now and being in physical contact with it, feeling what it feels like in space can have a huge carryover to the point where you start to recognize yourself instead of seeing a stranger when you look at it. So when I talk about touch, touch is really important with clients. It's not always comfortable being hands-on with stuff, but things like that, using a stick, using a foam roller, using a lacrosse ball. I actually feel that those things have a bigger carryover neurologically in terms of putting you in contact with how your body feels even more so than the actual muscle release that happens. So a lot of times when I first work with a client, you know, using the stick on their shoulders where everybody carries tension and a little bit in the mid back can have a huge carryover. One, because it loosens up some stuff that's tight in everybody. But two, that sort of like, all right, I'm in my body. I'm ready to go. I'm here like in physical space. So beyond nudity, they're <laughs> capable of in the gym. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of letter balls. So this is actually a, a baseball fielding drill that I found had a lot of carryover to clients. If you take a tennis ball, um, you can put letters on it, numbers on it, various spots in the ball. Doing tossing drills with yourself or with another person where they have to watch it and identify the symbol, the number, the letter that pops up as soon as they're in contact with the ball. You can even do rolling. You can even just kind of roll it around in your hands to adapt for different abilities. But having to focus on something that you're doing physically that has nothing to do with your performance that has nothing to do with your value can sort of break up that that pain loop, that judgment loop that gets you focused on what you're doing as a task at hand. That's sort of that sort of be the itch. Like this is the thing I'm doing right now. And if I don't pay attention, I'm going to drop it or I'm not going to know what letter is. I'm going to help be able to keep my attention for longer. For myself and for some of my clients, I've used things like juggling. Very scalable. You'd be surprised. Sometimes juggling is just throwing a beanbag back and forth. I like to walk around with them and do it. But it's one of those things where there's a little consequence where if you lose focus on what your body is doing at that moment, you're going to notice it. So in meditation, sometimes when you're talking about the psychological stuff, it's very easy to let your mind drift. On, and you know they talk about reeling it in over and over. But the physical stuff, you can put some little gentle consequences to, you know, what am I body doing now? If I'm working with Indian clubs and I lose my focus, I'm going to whack myself in the head. It's happened plenty of times. <laughs> um, use a hula hoop, a balance board. Uh, ladder drills are great. 
You know, even if you're just doing step touches, I love dance, any variations on dance, especially if you're trying to learn patterns, something like a ballroom dance or Zumba. I'm actually working with a friend of mine to kind of work on a, a video series of adaptive dance performances because memorizing steps and tying the brain to your body that way does a lot to break up that kind of psychological trauma and physical trauma loop as well. I told you there was a lot and that's not even, that's not even nearly all of them. But again, there's not one specific one. It's like, here's a bunch of tools, see which one kind of lights up something with a client and have them work on that regularly. And that's sort of the first step of just presentness in something idle, but important that can kind of help you get to that space where you can even start the meditation where you're relaxing your mind. You know, let, you know, let that, let the monkey brain do what it's supposed to. Let those signals get to your brain the way they're supposed to and don't get in their way so much. A lot of it is just kind of getting yourself out of your own way so that you can even properly process what's going on in your body and in your head. Something that's really standing out to me just from your entire talk, but it, it occurred to me during the meditation discussion is that there's a lot of crossover from other domains or other areas of fitness and training and coaching into adaptive fitness and even into any kind of meditation. It's whether it's breathing drills, being naked, ladder drills, dance, juggling in terms of meditation, but also figuring out what's working pulling from other specific disciplines, like you mentioned the the baseball field drill, using that as a form of mm-hmm. meditation. And I think that's I think that's a huge lesson here is that you're not you're creating a new way of working with a client, pulling and testing from different things that are working. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's 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 sort of building a prototype of anything. It's not if you try something and it doesn't work, you've just realized like that thing doesn't work right now. And it doesn't mean that you can't go back to it, but that's, that's information. It's the old misappropriated Thomas Edison quote where he's like, I didn't fail at making the light bulb a thousand times. I figured out a thousand ways to not make a light bulb. <laughs> so don't be afraid to try stuff. And that's the part of my conversation with my clients is, is like, I'm going to try stuff and you're going to be bad at it. And there's going to be stuff that you can't do. And it doesn't mean you can't do it later, but like if I, <laughs> I'm always like, if I don't make you feel like an idiot, at least once a session, I am not challenging you enough. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> and, you know, you get people of, of all abilities because there's a lot of crossover back to my general fitness science. I'm an enormously better general fitness trainer than I was before I started working with adaptive clients, even in terms of empathy for those body image issues. What I realized is I was very lucky to not develop them, but I just developed other stuff. <laughs> I have other issues of, of control and management and how I appear to the world. They just didn't take the form of like judgment of my physical body. But we literally all have our stuff and they're way more alike than they are different. But yeah, no, a lot of it is literally just like you start to narrow it down to like, this stuff is generally going to be helpful for like 90% of people and then I'm going to scale it. You know, my, my training sessions with a disabled client still involve to, to whatever way I can adapt it. Pushing, pulling, hinging, squatting, um, anti-rotation, bracing. It's very similar. You know, there's, there's way more posterior chain than anterior people. That's what they need to be balanced. But there's, it's definitely like, hmm, I do this thing and it's helpful for people. What's the way I can do it with this person? And if it doesn't work, I've got 17 other things to try. And sometimes it's a matter of, of, of taste and what the person likes. And sometimes it's just a matter of, of whatever issue they've got going on their, in their brain, whether it's an issue, uh, an, 
injury or whether it's just the fact that we all have stuff going on in our brain, you find the thing that, that kind of makes something click and opens up a window to get a bunch of other stuff in there. Well, thank you so much, Lee. We're coming to the end of our session. I'm sure that I will have you back as a guest to go more in depth into basically everything that we talked about. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask you some lightning round questions. Okay. These are questions that I ask every guest. So what is the most memorable thing you've ever eaten? I thought about this question because I had listened to all of your other podcasts. <laughs> and I actually, I'm going with like the third thing that came to mind because I, what I realized in thinking about this question, you probably noticed I don't give short answers, um, <laughs> is that I have like a really intimate relationship with food. And I was starting to, I'm like, I'm not telling that story. Not that it's <laughs> really sensitive, but it's like, no, that's too important to me. Um, I'll tell the short version of this one. It's an even funnier story longer, but I was at, I went to a wedding years ago, enormously expensive wedding, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, lasted for like nine or 10 hours. And I, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I have no, I have no thought that that is the most like empathetic and righteous way to eat anymore. It's mostly just habit. Um, and I also have an enormous appetite. So I went to this gorgeous wedding and there was, there were two happy hours around the ceremony, but all they were, had were like the vegetarian were like spring rolls. So I had a couple of those, but it was basically just vegetables. And it was like an eight course dinner, but it was, they would have a course and then they would have like speeches and dancing and then they would have an, it was lovely. It was gorgeous. But like the first couple of courses were like a wedge of romaine lettuce. And then there was a soup that was like a seafood bisque. I couldn't eat that. And then there was like a chicken course and I didn't eat that. And then after a while, I'm getting ready to like, just go sneak a slice of off the cake in the bag <laughs> before they got to that point because I was so hungry and I'm not a big drinker. So I wasn't drinking the calories. Um, you know, so we get, it's probably this started at seven. It's probably midnight. And then the course that they bring out is baked mac and cheese in like individual ramekins with like <laughs> the breadcrumbs on top. And in that moment, that was the absolute best mac and cheese I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and other people at the table who had were sold to the brim of all the other courses gave me theirs. And I think I ate three servings of that baked mac and cheese and I was not even full, but it was so good that I don't even know if it was good mac and cheese or if it just in that moment, that is what my body wanted and needed more than anything else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a mac and cheese that I haven't loved. So I'm with you. Oh yeah. You can't, you can't go wrong with it, but it was one of those, like, I, I'm pretty sure I clapped when they brought it out. I, I'm pretty sure there was a little like childlike small clap because I was so happy there was mac and cheese. <laughs> so what are the big three, I'm going to just say resources, but you could give me people, books, podcasts that have been influential to you. Um, with all of that stuff, like with everything, I'm a generalist. So there's some like really great episodes. I've liked of things, but I haven't listened enough to recommend the whole thing. Um, this is not pandering. I love your podcast. I think <laughs> it's really important to bring on a diverse group of people talking about a diverse group of issues that don't necessarily get the platform all the time. Same thing could be said for Sarah Polacco's podcast, which I've also been on. She just talks a lot about mental health issues, presentation issues, all kinds of things that, that don't get covered as much in fitness spaces. I would also, you know, between you and Marshall Roy, who's my personal coach in terms of letting me know that there, that people are curious about this, like, I've always thought I did cool stuff, but I also thought I did cool stuff that anybody could do. 
And so I didn't really think about presenting it, but having more people in my life recently who's like, well, maybe everybody can do it, but they don't know that has been enormously helpful for me to start writing and creating more things. Um, the other person I thought of is Brett Jones, who I've been to a couple of seminars where he's been presenting other people's material. One, he's really good at presenting it in a way that's very absorbable and helpful. But no matter what I've seen him presenting, he always takes time to um, talk about being sensitive 